You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared, it, uh, shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and it is the end to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a difficult chapter to understand in some parts um, because it does address the security of the believer. Can a believer fall away from the faith? Can they lose their salvation? And even worse, can they forfeit their salvation and not ever get it back? All right, we're gonna tackle that today as we work through chapter six. Let's look at the summary sentence for today. So for those that are visiting, this is kind of the, the whole gist of the sermon. I try to give it packaged in one rather lengthy sentence because there's a lot we're gonna say today. But if you wanted to try to reduce it, condense it down to one sentence, this is what we are trying to communicate this morning through God's word. That assurance of salvation is tied directly to God's unchangeable promises and Jesus's superior priestly work with our confidence in that assurance increasing as we mature in our understanding and application of those promises. All right, so our assurance of salvation is not tied to our performance, okay? We're gonna see that, that it's not about us and what we do that keeps us saved. Our assurance of salvation is tied to God's unchangeable promises. His character and then his vocalization of that character through this oath, man, our assurance of salvation is tied to his unchangeable promises. And his promises are then tied to Jesus's superior priestly work for us. But our confidence about our assurance of salvation increases as we mature in our understanding and application of those promises. So again, my salvation is not tied to my performance. It's not based on my good works, right? Nobody is saved by their good works. Otherwise, there would be room for boasting according to Ephesians chapter two. Instead, we are saved by the work of Jesus and then works come after salvation for the glory of God. My assurance of salvation is tied to God's promises about that. 
and they are as sure as his character is that he does not lie. But while my salvation may be true, my confidence in my salvation may not always be, be, be what I want it to be. So my confidence in that assurance will increase as I am maturing in my understanding of what God's word has to say and as I am being faithful to apply what it is I'm learning in God's word. So as I am maturing, as I am growing, right? I'm understanding more about God's word. I'm applying the things that I'm understanding. Man, I'm gonna feel a lot more assurance about my salvation because I'm understanding the character of God better. I'm understanding the promises of God better and what they mean, right? So we talked in our C group this past Wednesday night about the doctrine of justification. And in our group, we were talking about, man, when you understand justification, it changes the way that your life is lived, right? When you understand that doctrine of justification, that we are declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ, and that ultimately it's Jesus's sacrifice on the cross and his perfect life that saves us, man, it radically changes how I evangelize with people because I need them to understand that it doesn't matter if they're better than other people, right? Like, like they have to be perfect according to God's word. So the doctrine of justification drives me in my evangelism to help people see that your good works aren't what saves you, that you can only be declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ, okay? So it's that type of understanding and maturity that changes the way that we live our life, and it gives us increased confidence about the assurance of our salvation. For our kids that are sitting in here to kind of take that down and help you guys understand it, I can be sure that I am a Christian by learning more about the promises of God and choosing to believe them, okay? I know when I was a kid and even moving into youth age, I doubted my salvation constantly. That was one of the big things that we got recently when we did a survey with our kids at Trinity. What's one struggle that you have? Am I a Christian or am I not a Christian? So we did a whole breakout session on our discipleship day about assurance of salvation and how to handle doubting our salvation and what 1 John even has to say to give us confidence about our salvation, so I've been there. I've struggled with my assurance of salvation before. So I know for our kids, as they grow up in a Christian home, there's, there's the temptation to doubt salvation. When did I get saved? Am I truly saved? For our kids, you can be sure that you're a Christian by learning more about the promises of God and choosing to believe them. It will increase our confidence in what God, is, what is God, what God has done in our life. Okay? All right, let's jump into what God's word has to say here in chapter six. From an introductory standpoint, I love what verse three has to say in this chapter. It says in verse one and two that we need to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ, go on into maturity. Talks about getting away, not necessarily getting away as far as abandoning these things, but building off of these things as a foundation. So these things that are described here are listed as kind of a foundation to our faith, and then we build upon those things, right? So we we grow in our maturity. But verse three says, this we will do if God permits. And this is consistent with what we see in other passages in the New Testament, that it's God who is the driving force in our perseverance, right? It's in Philippians 1 where it says that if God starts a good work in us, he continues the work, he finishes the good work in us, right? So God is the one who permits the spiritual growth within us. The goal of this passage here in Hebrews chapter six is to give us confidence rather than doubt about our salvation, right? So you can easily read this and start to question and wonder, am I guilty of this? Have I lost my salvation? But the goal is to really give us confidence. Verse nine says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, 
We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Even the author, when he wrote it and shared it with the original readers, he felt like this does not apply to you, at least to the majority of you. We expect better things, things that belong to salvation out of you. But I do think this passage should caution us to put overwhelming weight in a past experience if nothing has flown from that experience, right? Like, like I've encountered people who will say, yeah, I know I'm a Christian because on this date, at this time in history, I, I, I prayed a prayer or I went down front or I got baptized or I joined a church. I'm just not living like it today, right? Like scripture confidence-wise says, man, there is a day and time where you move from, from death to life. You transfer from darkness to light. But if that truly happens, things begin to change. So I think this passage does caution us in, in putting all of our confidence in one past experience and, and not feeling concerned if nothing has flown from that experience, okay? Um, it's always important when you come to harder passages of Scripture like this that we allow clearer passages in Scripture to help us with the interpretation because Scripture can't contradict itself, right? So we're going to see some other passages that I think shed some light on the difficulty of Hebrews chapter 6 because I do think overall Scripture teaches that genuine faith cannot be lost. I think we also see in this chapter some marks of true belief that there's faith, there's love or service towards others because the author highlights what he says, the fact that they've been serving the saints as they still do. And then we also see the concept of hope here. Man, this is really consistent with what we saw way back when we planted our church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. When Paul was talking about the salvation of the Thessalonians, he says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those three pillars there in 1 Thessalonians 1 are reiterated here in Hebrews chapter 6 because we see the importance of faith, the importance of love or service, and certainly the chapter finishes with the importance of hope in God's promises. All right, let's jump into our notes here with Roman numeral one. Go deeper in learning. Go deeper in learning for our kids. If I am a Christian, I need to learn more about Jesus. We don't want to be content with just knowing the gospel. We want to go deeper in our learning, deeper in our understanding of God's word, because as we said, it's only going to increase the assurance that we have in our salvation. Go deeper in learning. That's what he starts off chapter six with. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, a lot of commentators believe that this list here was kind of an early catechism for the church that they would teach to people who were coming to profess Jesus in hopes of preventing false uh, conversions or false professions of faith. So this may have been what the content would have been for like a new members class at, at the first church. Like these were the things that they kind of covered early in somebody's salvation experience. So these things aren't bad. These things are absolutely necessary right? And absolutely necessary to our faith. But the author is saying, we need to move beyond this. It's similar to the foundation that you would establish in kindergarten or elementary school. And you want to continue to build off of those skills, right? Middle school builds off of what kids learn in elementary. High school builds off of what you learn in middle school and so on. And so what he's saying here is that, 
hey, you've grasped the elementary doctrines of Christ. Now we need to progress and move on to a greater level of maturity. Don't stay content with the things that you've already learned. Now he lists off some things here. I'm gonna touch on them briefly because his purpose is not to really delve into these things. So he doesn't give a ton of information about what he is actually referencing. He's assuming that his original readers absolutely know what he's talking about. Problem is, is that we're 2,000 years later, we don't always fully know what he's talking about. So he mentions dead works. I think this certainly has to do with the idea of what we do from a negative side of things when it comes to salvation. It's our turning away from sin. It's our repenting from trying to keep God's law in order to earn his favor. It's certainly a turning from our sinful works or our dead works. He uses similar language in Hebrews chapter 9. So same author, so we can probably assume this is probably gonna give us an indicator of what he means. It says in verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, right? So these are things that we do before salvation, right? Positive things that are done to try to earn God's favor, negative things that are done in disobedience, those dead works and understanding of how God saves us from those dead works is certainly an an elementary portion of the gospel, certainly something that we have to learn early and often so that we even know how to become saved, to turn from those things. He says, you've, you've, you've understood that, you've grasped that, now let's move forward. He talks about faith towards God. This is the positive act of salvation. Not only do we turn from sin, we do what? We turn to Jesus. Repenting of those things, we turn to Jesus. We turn to God to trust in his promises. Even the aspect of what he talks about here with Abraham and the faith that Abraham has. We see that in Genesis chapter 15 where Abraham expresses faith and trust in God's promises. It was counted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6 tells us. We get a greater picture of that in Romans chapter 4, when Paul kind of breaks down how salvation works for Abraham, right? He talks about the belief of Abraham and how God counted that as righteousness for him. So faith, certainly an important part of our salvation and how we come to Jesus. The washing instructions, Now, this could either reference some of the cleansing rites that were part of Old Testament law, because remember, we're talking about people here in Hebrews who are tempted to go back to the Old Testament law, right? Like they're tempted to abandon Jesus and go back to the old system. So he may be addressing the fact that, hey, we've already taught you that the Old Testament washings pointed to something greater. He could also be talking about what would be um, our understanding of baptism and just the deeper meaning of baptism, that it's certainly a washing aspect, right? Because Acts twenty two sixteen even says, in response to the gospel, believe and be baptized and wash away your sins. But we know that getting in a baptismal pool doesn't wash away our sins. It's simply a picture of what's already happened. We see that in Romans chapter six, right? The, the deeper understanding of baptism, that it's a spiritual picture of us being buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. So he's saying, hey, you guys understand baptism. You guys have been baptized. We've taught you the meaning of baptism. Let's move forward. The idea of hand laying. We see this in the book of Acts. It's done in various ways, preparation for service. They would pray and lay hands over their missionaries. We see times of blessing, times of healing. Even early on when the Holy Spirit is transitioning there, the the day of Pentecost, people are having hands laid upon them to receive the Holy Spirit. Um, If you think Old Testament terms, people would lay their hands on the sacrifices as a picture of transfer of their sin to the animal so that it could be killed in their place. 
He's saying, hey, let's move beyond some of those teachings that we've given to you. Resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. These are things that were well known in the Old Testament, but certainly in the New Testament, there's greater understanding about that. But this is what we talked about, that introduction to eschatology, that you have been taught about the end times. So again, these are some topics that they probably covered early on with new believers. And he says, it's time to grow up now. You've graduated from the new members class. It's time to move forward in your maturity. So we wanna do, uh, number one, we wanna know the basics and build on that foundation. Know the basics and build on that foundation. The idea here, the author wants us to see the need to push forward and to progress in our understanding of God and his word. And it's in the midst of this talk about progression, growing up, moving forward, that he talks about the idea of falling away which again, I think kind of paints the idea that you, you can't really stay put in your Christian faith. You're either, either moving forward or you're moving backward or falling away. Okay, so it's in the midst of talking about moving forward as a believer that he describes, verse four, something that's impossible. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. All right, know the basics, build on that foundation. Number two, failure to grow may indicate a lack of true belief. Now we're gonna camp out here for for the bulk of our time moving forward and then we're gonna kind of rush through the end because the end is less confusing, less hard to understand, okay? So we're gonna spend, so don't think, man, like we're never gonna finish this because of how much time we just spend on this stuff. Like I've already prepared, we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time on the rest of it, okay? Failure to grow may indicate a lack of belief. He says something is impossible here. And like I told you earlier today, that ought to raise some red flags, it ought to sound the alarms because scripture is heavy on telling us how possible things are with God, right? That, that things that we would think to be impossible are absolutely possible with God, right? Like I was talking with AJ and Abram last night. AJ asked me to tell him the story of Moses. And so we were talking through the, the Exodus and, and Moses leading the people out of uh, Egypt and, and they came to the, the Red Sea. And the Israelites think, well, we're done for because the Egyptians are coming here and we've got this big Red Sea in front of us. There's, there's nothing that can save us. We should have just stayed in Egypt, right? And then the possible is shown to them that the Red Sea can be split and you can walk through dry land and God can extinguish the Egyptians by crashing the waters down on them. So the scripture is very heavy on showing us things that we think are impossible are very possible with God. But it's here where God is saying that something is impossible. And so that should certainly alert us. We need to understand what it is that's impossible because the, the Bible doesn't use this word much. Now, the author of Hebrews uses it several times. And so if we're thinking in terms of how does he view the word impossible, does he really mean that it's impossible or does he just mean that it's hard or difficult? Well, in Hebrews chapter six, verse 18, he says it's impossible for God to lie. Like I want that one to be really impossible, right? Like I don't want that to be possible at at any point that God could tell a lie, right? He also says in chapter 10, verse four, it's impossible for animals to save you. It's impossible for the sacrifices of animals to save you. 
I need that to be true all the time as well. I don't need it to be really hard for animal sacrifices to save you because if animal sacrifices can save you, then it warrants the sacrifice of Jesus unnecessary, right? So he says it's impossible for animal sacrifices to save you. And chapter 11, verse six, it says, it's impossible for somebody to please God without faith. Man, I need that one to be true all the time too, that that faith is what saves us and not good works because if it's not faith, then I gotta, get, I, gotta, I gotta really evaluate and make sure that I've got enough good works to measure up to God's standard, which I don't, right? So the way he uses impossible, he really means it's impossible, okay? So we definitely wanna be cued into that. Some questions that could be asked here, you know, in regards to what does this mean? Does it mean that you can lose your salvation and it be impossible to gain it back? That, that's, a, that's a possible interpretation here, that it's impossible if you are saved and you abandon your salvation for you to ever come back and get saved again. That you get one shot at it, and if you walk away, you just missed out. Like, you, you, you lost it. That's one interpretation. You could also look at this and say, well, this passage is trying to teach us that it's impossible for this to ever happen to a Christian. That, that you could never do this as a Christian, okay? I'm gonna show you, after a little bit of discussion here, what I really think the impossible piece is to this. Okay, I do think that the warning here is meant to call us to progress in our Christian faith, to mature in our Christian faith, in our Christian faith, and that there's a major danger here if we don't, right? Like there's an alert here to us that if you're not doing this, that you ought to be concerned, because what he goes on to say here with this agricultural illustration, right? The idea that when the rains come and it hits the ground, that it produces fruit. The idea here is that. When there is true life, there is fruitful growth. And where there's not true life, thorns and thistles spring up, right? And so you're to measure the validity of the soil. You're to measure the validity of somebody's response based on the fruit that is produced in their life is what we see as he continues this discussion, okay? Some people would say this is a hypothetical situation, that it is saying if a Christian were to ever abandon their faith, it would be impossible to save them again. Some people think this is describing actual believers, that those who fall away as Christians don't ever get to come back. So the hypothetical piece is that if this were possible, you would never be able to save a Christian again, but it's not possible. He's just kind of throwing out this hypothetical situation to scare people into staying Christians. Other people would say, no, this is true. If you're a Christian and you decide to walk away from Jesus, you don't ever get to come back. Like, like he doesn't take you back the second time. You get one shot at following him. And if you stop following him, you don't get to be saved any longer. Others, and this is where I would fall. This is describing people who look to be believers. They are apparent believers. They express faith. They maybe even join your church, but eventually they fall away. Okay, so what's at stake here? Well, what's at stake here is our understanding of our assurance of salvation. Does my performance keep me saved? If I fall away, do I lose my salvation? And if I lose my salvation, could I ever get it back? I believe this is presenting, and again, the author doesn't know who's saved and who's not saved from those that are originally reading this. What he is saying is that it's impossible. It's impossible to be exposed to all the goodness of the gospel, all the goodness of Christ, and to walk away from that and to ever be brought to repentance again. The idea being here that when they have rejected the gospel, there's nothing left to save them. 
okay? And I wanna show you how that's consistent with other scripture passages, all right? So he describes people who are enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come, and they fall away from it. So this is not somebody who has truly gotten saved. This is what we would use to describe the people in, in, in the wilderness, the Israelites. Remember we said, think about all the things they were exposed to. These guys went through all the plagues, right? And we were talk, I was talking with them with AJ last night. We were talking about the, the sea, the, the, the water turning into blood, the frogs and the locusts and, and the darkness and the, the taking of the firstborn son, right? Like if I'm an Israelite, I'm a Jew and I'm sitting back and I'm just like, wow, like our God's really powerful. Like he's more powerful than the Egyptian gods, right? And then, and then we leave Egypt and I'm standing there and maybe I'm a kid and I'm saying, mom, dad, like, what are we gonna do? Like, I can see the army coming and there's nowhere for us to go. And then the sea gets split, right? And they're walking through dry land. And I'm imagining like the discussion taking place, like how in the world is this, is this dry? Like how in the world, what's the drainage system like for this to be so dry? We had to move our football game Friday night because of all the rain from an away game to a home game because their field was completely underwater. Like it was not draining at all. Thankfully, we have artificial turf. Now it was still wet, but the drainage system's great. Like we played on it as though it hadn't been raining for the, for the last several hours. It wasn't even wet, right? Like, like the drainage system that God created for the Red Sea was unbelievable. I mean, I imagine them walking thinking like, how in the world is this possible? Then they can't find any water and water's coming out of the rock that God provides. They don't have any food and they're waking up the next day and there's food that they're tasting, right? Like they're eating manna and they didn't have to work for it. Bible even says that at the end of their wilderness wanderings, they're still wearing the same shoes. After 40 years, they didn't wear out, right? Like this is, this is a great shoe company that creates a shoe that can last for that long. They've tasted, they've seen, they've experienced all this stuff. And what are they? They're a group of unbelievers, right? Like it says they don't believe in God. They don't trust in him. They keep turning to other things. They keep turning to idols. So what he's talking about are people who have experienced a lot of the things that come from following God. They've been around people who are Christians. So they've experienced the things of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the things of God's word, but they walk away from it. They abandon it. They say, that's not for me. He says it's impossible for these people to come back to repentance because there's nothing left to show them. That they have all the information and they've made their choice. All right, so it parallels the Israelites who the author has already talked about. It parallels the soil parable that we see Jesus share in Matthew chapter 13. You'll remember he talks about the farmer who comes and spreads seed. Some of it falls on rocky ground, right? Some of it's eaten by the birds and it never even gets a chance to take root. It's only the seed that is really shown to grow and produce that's viewed as a valid response to the gospel, right? Everything else kind of shows potential response, but as soon as things get tough, it kind of gets choked out and it withers and it dies. So it parallels that soil parable because the idea there is that experiences don't necessarily mean salvation. Bearing fruit is a true sign of belief. Now, here's what I want to be real real clear. In that passage, so we'll go to Matthew 13 real quick. Matthew chapter 13, parable of the soil. Verse 23. 
So he's already described that the, the, the word that fell on these other grounds, not valid stuff, proves unfruitful. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Here's what I want you to understand. True believers produce fruit but that fruit's gonna look way different in regards to amount. Now, we're gonna produce the same fruit, we're gonna produce the same types of fruit, but what your spiritual growth looks like and the rate that it happens is gonna look different than me, and that's okay. All right, so when we talk about progressing in our faith and the things that we know and how we apply that knowledge, it is going to look very different. The fruit that we bear as true believers will look different in regards to amount. Now, We should be producing the same type of fruit, the the fruits of the Spirit, right? But your level of patience is going to look different than mine. I'm a work in progress. You're a work in progress. And and sometimes your progress goes faster than me. But what we have to understand is that progress is happening regardless. That's what happens in a true believer. Now, I can look over and and be discouraged thinking, well, why am I not growing as fast as this person? Why is this, this person progressing faster, looking more mature? I mean, this is part of God's work in us that he permits, We also don't want to be judgmental towards others who aren't growing at the same rate that we are, right? Like I'm over here and I'm like, wow, look at all the fruit that I've got. Like I am blossoming over here. What's your problem? Like your fruit doesn't look like you had a good season over there, right? Like that's not our role either. The important thing is that we are calling people to progress in their faith and to produce fruit as a sign of true belief. And it's consistent. Understanding this passage this way is consistent with what we see there with the soil parable, that some people are going to look like responders but they are not going to allow the word to really take root. They're not going to produce fruit. It's consistent with the perseverance passages. There are multiple passages of scripture that really highlight how Christians can't fall away. Matthew 24, 24 talks about the deception that comes in the end times and it will be so great that it would, that it would cause the elect or the saved to fall away. And it says, if that were possible. It's not possible, though, for, for, for somebody who's truly saved to fall away. But the deception will be so great that if that were possible, even saved people would fall to it. But it's a nod to the fact that it's not possible that Christians can't fall away from the faith. John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. It's a passage that talks about how secure we are in the hands of Christ, that, that no one can snatch us from his grip. Romans 8, 29 and 30 talks about the progression that when he calls somebody, he glorifies somebody. Talks about kind of the stages of salvation, that it's a progress, it's a work in progress, but when God starts it, he finishes it. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. He finishes the process. Romans 8, 38 and 39 talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. Philippians 1, 6, he starts a good work, he finishes a good work. I think one of my favorite passages in the New Testament comes from Jude, verse 24. I mean, if you want to know, where do you defend that a Christian doesn't lose their salvation? Jude chapter 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever, amen. Man, he is talking about God is so capable 
He keeps us from stumbling. He keeps us from falling away. He is capable, it says, of making sure that we make it to the end so that he can present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Without without God permitting it, we would fall away. Without God permitting it, we would stumble. But God permits it. God keeps us believing. As we sang this morning, make my heart believe, that's what God does in the lives of believers. He makes our hearts believe. He makes us hold fast to him. It's consistent with these perseverance passages. It's also consistent with passages that talk about Christians and non-Christians existing alongside of each other and you not knowing the difference all the time. In Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter seven, verse 16. Talks about false prophets, right? And how to distinguish false prophets. And they're they're gonna look like sheep they're going to be in sheep's clothing, but you're going to have to really look at their fruit to determine who they are. Because it says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. But he says, man, they're going to look a lot like good teachers. False teachers and good teachers look a lot alike, but you really have to examine their fruit to know the difference. We also see in Matthew chapter 13, this is right after that soil parable, And this is, I think, where we're reminded, don't judge somebody too quickly just because they're taking a long time to show their fruit. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, we're actually, uh, let's go to verse uh, 28. We'll start in 24, though. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. So the picture here is that he's like, man, if we try to go fix this right now, it's gonna be hard because the wheat's growing, the weeds are growing, and it's not always easy to determine which is which. And in the midst of trying to pull the weeds, you may pull something that's really grain. He says, we're just gonna let it grow. We're gonna let it grow to maturity. And once we reach maturity, when it's harvest time, it'll be a whole lot easier to separate this stuff. And when we come to reap the harvest, then we'll separate the wheat from the tares. Then we'll take the good stuff and hang on to it and we'll discard the stuff that's not supposed to be there. Again, the idea here is that all of us have been exposed to the gospel. Those of us that truly have responded to it will bear fruit. Those that don't will most likely fall away. And we'll just wait till the process of maturity plays itself out to figure out who's in whose camp. It's consistent with these passages of mixed Christians and non-Christians. It's also consistent with passages that describe falling away. It's consistent with the idea of falling away. In, let me see if we're gonna take the time to read this one. Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers 
of lawlessness. Man, these are people who will think they are Christians up until the day of judgment. And then at that point, Jesus is going to say, not, I knew you at one point, but then you fell away and then I stopped knowing you, right? He says, I, I just never knew you. Like, like you, you never really responded to me. In 1 John two nineteen, that's the passage that says people were a part of us and then they left us. And had they truly been a part of us, they would have stayed with us. Right? So there are passages in Scripture that talk about this mixed bag of Christians, non-Christians existing alongside of each other. And that is certainly true in the local churches today, especially as the concept of membership has been kind of diminished as far as you can, you can go to church and there could be just a real mixture of Christians and non-Christians. Right? A lot of churches are very seeker-sensitive on Sunday mornings to where non-Christians are drawn to some of those services. Bible says, we'll be able to tell the difference on judgment day. We'll be able to tell the difference when maturity happens and we can see who bears fruit and who doesn't bear fruit. Judas and Demas are great examples of people who were exposed to all the goodness and never really got it, right? Judas abandons Jesus, betrays Jesus. Demas was with Paul, abandons Paul, says that he loved the world too much, all right? So what are we saying here? What's impossible? It's impossible to be fully exposed to the gospel, to reject it and have opportunity to repent of it in the future. Now, here's the kicker. We don't know when this happens. We don't know when this happens. But Jesus describes something very similar that is called the unpardonable sin, right? In Matthew chapter 12. What happens in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus heals a guy. He's teaching the people. He's healing people. And the Pharisees are fully exposed to this, right? Like they've, they've been enlightened. They've tasted of this. They've been exposed to the Holy Spirit's working. And what do the Pharisees determine at the end of this whole thing? They say, this guy's the devil. Like, like this guy's Satan. He comes from Satan. And Jesus backs up and he's like, okay, like if that's what you think, if after you've been exposed to the gospel message and you have seen the power of the gospel, if you're going to determine the exact opposite, that I'm not from God, that I'm from Satan, I don't, I don't have anything left to do. I, don't have any, I can't say anything else. I can't do anything else. You've made your choice. You've made your decision. And the Bible says there comes a point in some people's life where they have rejected the gospel to such an extent that it's not really extended to them anymore. And here's what I want to eliminate. There is never, never a time where somebody is sitting back going, I'd love to get saved, but I committed the unpardonable sin and I don't get to get saved anymore. That, that never happens, right? If anybody is saying they want to be saved, they haven't committed the unpardonable sin, right? They haven't crucified Jesus again to their own contempt. That happens in the lives of people who never want to be saved again who never want to be exposed to the gospel again, right? So again, we're not talking about people who get saved, lose their salvation, and they can't come back. We're not even saying that this passage says you can't ever do this as a believer. What we're saying is that if you were exposed to all these things, you've been enlightened like the Israelites, there is the possibility that something will become impossible for you, that you will reject the gospel to such an extent that you don't have the opportunity for repentance again that you have fully rejected it 
you have denounced Jesus as being satanic, basically, and you want nothing to do with him. It's impossible for somebody to come to repentance at that point. I want to show you a quick video to like two minutes to wrap this, this portion up. And like I said, we're going to fly through the last part to finish out chapter six. But I love for you guys to hear a consistent message from not just me, but from others as well. So this comes from J.D. Greer, pastor, and I believe president of Southern Baptist Convention right now, I think. Let's see if we can get this to play. The short answer to this one is no. Um, but one of the things that I, I, I discovered um, really in my own personal journey with this, as well as I was doing research for a book I wrote called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, is that the way that a lot of uh, Baptist or modern-day Christians talk about this is different than how, uh, than how Christians like Charles Spurgeon, John Bunyan, John Calvin uh, talked about it. Um, because we talk about it like it's this, uh, like a handshake agreement with God where you sign one side of the contract, he signs the other, and uh, then basically uh, he'll never let go of you, his side of the, uh, of the bargain. But um, really what the, when the Bible talks about it, it talks about it as um, a work of God that he begins in you, that he will continue for the rest of your life. And one of the proofs that the work in you is real is that it goes on for the rest of your life. So if it, if it ceases... If you cease to walk with God, then that proves that you never really had the faith to, to begin with. And if you do walk with God for the rest of your life, you maintain that original confession, then that shows that you had the salvation that you can never lose. This is how you know Paul talked about it. He urged them to continue on um, in the grace of God. The writer of Hebrews says that you know we're going to be saved if we hold fast our confession to the end. And the way I say it is once saved, always saved, that's true. But also what is true is once saved, forever following. Um, when Jesus told a story about the, the parable of the seeds, there was a seed that fell into the soil that sprang up quickly and it you know, sprung up and looked so good, but then you know, the, the roots were too shallow and the sun came out and it withered away. Um, question that John Calvin asked is, do those represent saved people or unsaved people? Are they saved people who lost their salvation? Well, no. There's too many other places in the Bible that teach that you can't lose your salvation once God really gives it to you. Romans 8, those he predestined, those he called, those he called, those he justified, those he glorified. And um, John 10, you know, I hold my sheep in my hand and I'll never let them go. He said it can't be that. Um, what they are are they're um, unsaved people who for a while look like they're saved people. And there's a lot of people who are resting on this kind of assurance of salvation because they prayed this prayer and they signed the contract. But um, one of the signs that you have the faith that you can't lose is that you never totally fall away from it. When you do, God brings you right back. So yes, once saved, always saved, but also once saved, forever following. All right, so the idea there, again, is that this is not something that's possible for a believer, but is possible for those who sometimes look like believers, right? And so they, they show signs of being Christian, but we'll know if they're truly Christians or not based on whether they keep persevering and keep following. We come to verse nine and he says, we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So he says, I don't think this is you. I think you are true Christians. I think you will keep progressing in your faith. Because remember, he's saying, move from elementary into middle school. Move, graduate, keep progressing in your faith. And he says, I fully expect you to do this because the other option would be to fall away. 
I don't think that's of you because things of salvation belong to you, right? And so then he goes on and he says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. All right, so number two, keep serving others. He says, man, I see things that belong to salvation to you. One of the things that I see is that you serve the saints and God sees that and God doesn't overlook that. And you've been serving the saints and you're still serving the saints. Hebrews chapter 10 says, once these people were enlightened and taught and understood the gospel and got it, their response was to take care of people. It says, even when their property was being plundered, they were, they were giving away their stuff. They were taking care of each other. They were visiting people in prison, right? So they were serving the saints as they still do. Their inner change was leading to an outer change. Number two, for our, uh, for our kids, if I'm a Christian, I need to serve others. Number two, or number one, knowledge is meant to lead us to action. Knowledge is meant to lead us to action. They get the knowledge. They start acting it out. They start serving other people. And then number two, serving others helps us mature and leads to reward. Because God in his justice does not overlook this stuff. He sees it, he recognizes it, and he will respond to it. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so that leads us into number three. Find others to imitate. For our kids, if I'm a Christian, I need to follow older Christians' examples. Look what he says there. We desire each of you to show same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's talking about the need to imitate others, people who have demonstrated faith and patience. We need to imitate those people and avoid being sluggish or avoid being lazy, lazy, which means, number one, others help us make it to the end. We've talked about this, that, um, that we need people exhorting us daily so that we do make it to the end, so that we do keep believing. Yes, God will preserve us. Yes, God will keep us believing to the end, and he will use other Christians to help do that. We need people who are pace setters in our life. Think about it, when you run, when you run a 5K, I think, I think it's traditional, I've only run like two in my life, so both times that I did this, I was told to find somebody else that was running that seemed to be kind of at my pace and try to stay at that same pace with them, like as a pace setter, because if you just kind of go out and run a 5K on your own, it's real easy to kind of get tired and to kind of stop a little bit, I'm gonna stop and rest, but if you find somebody who's kind of running at the same pace as you, I mean, they kind of motivate you to keep pressing on. Like, I need to, to kind of gauge my, my speed based on this person's speed. They keep pressing on, I keep pressing on. That's what we need in the Christian life. We need people that we can imitate who keep us moving forward. So we need to surround ourselves with people that we value who are demonstrating faith and patience in clinging to God's promises. That accountability piece will help us avoid laziness in our Christian walk. He says, don't be sluggish in your pursuit of maturity. He wants these people to show some urgency. He gives us an example in Abraham. He would want us to imitate Abraham's faith. But even in Hebrews 13, 7, it talks about imitating the faith of your leaders. Imitating the faith of your leaders in the local church. Like you ought to have leadership in the local church that you, you can follow after, right? Paul's always telling the people that he writes to, follow me as I follow Christ. 
It's healthy to have people in your life that you can say, I'm gonna follow this person because by following this person, I'm following Jesus. I've got people in my life that come to my mind when I know I'm being sluggish and I think to myself, not what would Jesus do, but what would this person do in this situation? Because I know what this person would do. This person would be pushing towards faith. And it motivates me to make right decisions sometimes because I know the people that I have in my life that I wanna imitate would do a certain thing in a certain situation. He says, we need these people to imitate their faith, to imitate their patience. Number two, maturity is working to trust while waiting. Those who work at their faith make their hope sure. All right, and then lastly, I told you we were gonna fly through the last, last portion of this. Lastly, number four, believe in his promises. For our kids, if I'm a Christian, I need to trust God because he never lies. All right, so he's, he's saying, Move from elementary to maturity. Progress in your faith. Don't fall away from your faith. Don't fall away because to do that, man, to reject everything, man, it would be impossible for somebody to really come to repentance because they would be showing themselves to have not been a Christian and to have rejected it. There's nothing left to hear, right? But he says, I don't think that's you. I think you're gonna keep pressing on, right? I think you're gonna, you're gonna make it to maturity because you're, you're showing signs of maturity through the fact that you're serving other people And if you keep imitating others who have a great faith and a great level of patience, you're going to make it to the end. Then he describes Abraham and the promises made to Abraham. And he highlights, first of all, the unchangeableness of God and how that assures us of our salvation. It says God made a promise to Abraham and he had no one greater than to whom to swear than he himself. And so he blessed Abraham and he swore by himself, right? So he doesn't swear on his mom's name. He doesn't swear on anybody else's name. He swears on his own name because there's nobody greater than God. And so God in human language, because it should just be enough for God to say, I'm gonna do something. But God says, you know what? I'm gonna gonna double up here and I'm gonna swear on myself that I keep my promises. You'll remember when we studied Genesis 15, it's that weird passage where where Abraham cuts the, the, the animals and they've got the animals like, in pieces and, and Abraham goes to sleep and God is passing through those animals, that it was a covenant at that point in time. And it was supposed to be both parties passing through that, right? But Abraham never does. God's the one passing through it. And he says, if I don't keep my promises, cut me in two pieces. Like that's what should happen to me if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain. God makes a promise, an oath, swears by it, says, I will not lie. I will keep my promises. So that's what's going on there with his discussion about Abraham. He is talking about the unchangeableness of God and how it assures us of our salvation. His character, Titus 1-2, says that God cannot lie there as well. And that Genesis 15 passage is the passage where he makes that oath to Abraham. Then number two, and lastly, the work of Jesus anchors our hope in salvation. God's unchangeableness, we said this at the very beginning in our summary sentence, How do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I know I'm a Christian because God doesn't change and he's made promises. And his promises are tied to the great priestly work of Jesus. Look what it says. Those of us who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What's my hope? What's my anchor? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Get this last point and we'll be done. Jesus 
all of his work allows him to enter the Holy of Holies and he tears that veil. Remember, the Holy of Holies was where the high priest could go. It's where he offered those sacrifices for the forgiveness of the people, but nobody else could go in there. And they were even fearful about him not being able to come out because of his own sin. There was never an anticipation that I'll get to go in there with him. But this is where Jesus is called the forerunner. It's why he's a better priest because he plows the way so that we can go in there as well. For my football friends, Jesus, Jesus acts like what a fullback does in football. If you don't know that analogy, let me tell it to you. The goal in football, when you get on the goal line a lot of times, is to pack everybody in really, really tight and basically say, we think we're better than you. We think we're stronger than you. We're not gonna try to trick you right here. We're just gonna run the ball right into the end zone and we're gonna have a lead blocker that plows the way forward and our guy's gonna come into the end zone and score a touchdown, right? Georgia tried to do this yesterday six times in a row and couldn't get in the end zone. Their fullback could not plow the way through and they stopped Georgia on the goal line. Jesus functions like a fullback in the sense that he plows forward, he opens up a hole, he opens up the veil into God's presence and we step into it. No other priest could ever do that. Every other priest was sinful. They could not do that. Jesus acts as a forerunner allowing us to enter into God's presence, which is our anchor because the only reason we're there, not by my good works, but by the work of Jesus Christ, right? The guy who scores the touchdown, he owes all the credit to the fullback who made the hole for him. Our assurance of salvation is tied directly to God's promises. He doesn't change, he doesn't lie. It's tied directly to Jesus who has made a way for us to be with God. Application questions. Number one, These are questions that I want you to reflect on in leaving today. Am I more mature in my faith from a knowledge standpoint and an application standpoint today than I was a year ago at this time? Why or why not? You think back a year ago from now. Do you know more about God? Do you trust him more? Does your life look different today than it did a year ago? And if not, the question needs to be asked, why? Because the expectation is that we do progress in our faith, that we do push towards maturity. We need to make sure that the soil is prepared for when that rain comes and we grow. We didn't hit on that as much, but in the middle there, chapter six, it talks about the rain coming and the fruit coming in response to that rain. Am I more mature in my faith today than I was a year ago at this point? Why or why not? Number two, what are some ways that you can better prepare the soil of your heart for the rain of God's word? Man, are you putting yourself underneath God's word consistently so that you can mature, so that you can change? That's in your own personal time. That's in coming to to a local body to gather with other believers. That's even taking steps on a Saturday night to make sure that your soil is best prepared on a Sunday morning, right? With the amount of sleep that we get, with the type of attitude that we come with on a Sunday morning. Man, we wanna make that soil so soft and so tender and so ready to receive God's word. Are you putting yourself underneath God's word in similar ways? Number three, who are the people that you have identified in your life that you want to be like? And how are you striving to imitate them? And God blesses us with believers in our life that are are great examples of Jesus to us. We need to identify those people that God gives us. 
We need to put ourselves around those people so that we can be affected by those people, so that we can imitate their faith. Find people who demonstrate great faith and great patience, long-suffering, endurance. Put yourself around those people and seek to imitate them. Our family worship questions this week. Read Hebrews chapter 7 as a family. And then number two, talk about some clear things in this chapter and then talk about some questions that you might have as well. As Tyson comes to lead us, um, next week, we've been about seven weeks now in Hebrews, so next week we're gonna have Application Sunday. So for those that are visiting with us this morning, we would love to have you come back next Sunday. But what we do on Application Sunday, we do this about every seven, six to eight weeks. Um, We step back and we just kind of go back through the last six sermons, talk about the application points, how we can do that better as individuals, as a church, and then we eat a meal together. Sometimes we eat breakfast together. Sometimes we eat lunch together. We still start at 10 o'clock, but it's shaped by which meal we eat as far as whether we start with the application or after. So we're gonna have application Sunday next week. It's a little bit different than a normal service, but we would love to have everybody that's visiting with us today come back and join us next week as we kind of go back through what we've talked about already in Hebrews because we're about to push forward in chapter seven with the deeper teachings of Melchizedek, right? He says, I wanna teach you about it, you're on milk right now. You need meat though, or you still need milk. We want to get to the meat point. He's about to give some meat in regards to what he comes with next in chapter seven. So we're going to pause, have application Sunday next week, and then jump into chapter seven the following week. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing one song in closing today. God, I thank you for what you've communicated in your word. And God, I'm thankful that when you save us, you keep us believing in you so that we do persevere to the end. But God, help us to see that we have responsibility in that that we can't be sluggish, that we need to push forward. We need to be intentional with responding to your word. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that has been exposed to the goodness of the gospel, exposed to the goodness of local church community, but has never really put their faith and trust in you, that they would do that today. God, help them to heed the warning that continued rejection of your goodness may lead to a point where they never see it again. God, I pray that they would respond they would believe. God, we thank you today that the assurance of our salvation is not tied to our performance, that we don't have to be concerned about whether or not we're producing enough fruit to warrant you saving us. God, we're thankful that you've promised to save and that you don't lie and that you've promised to save based on the work of Jesus who acts as that forerunner for us. We're thankful that we have access to your presence now because he is a perfect priest. God, I pray that we would keep believing and that our assurance and our salvation would increase as we seek to know you more and as we seek to apply your word faithfully in our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.